Good morning. I know you're thinking, well, he kind of changed his look since the last time he was up there, and that change apparently involves him sitting on a stool as well. Actually, I wish it was that simple, but it, that's not. Um, me sitting on a stool is basically, and I don't want this to sound offensive uh, to some of you, especially on the back row right over there, um, but I got a thing going on right now. It's called Old Man's Back, and um, yeah, it's, it's something that's just been worsening with time and and yeah, I'm following up and all of that. I know you'll be asking questions like that. But uh, um, so anyway, that's the explanation for the uh, stool that I'm sitting on. Let me just say a word or two here before I get into the message today. Um, and especially, I want to direct a comment to any of our visitors that we have with us today that that, uh, you know, this may be your first time or maybe the first time in a long time. Uh, maybe you visited sometime in the past, but now you're here today. Uh, our church family has, you know, been going through a really rough eight days. We had a tragedy um, that occurred in one of our staff families, and it's just shaken everything. Um, just because uh, the family was loved and, and uh, a lot of relationships, you know, surrounding that family. And, and so we're just kind of dealing with that, and we have been for the last eight days. And, and now I want to open that comment to everybody here. I just want to thank you. You've heard it before, and I'm going to echo a little bit of that. The kind words that we've been getting, the messages in a variety of forms, uh, text and email and cards and what all, um, just reminders that you all are praying for the staff, um, and there's been food and stuff too, and quite honestly, um, you know, and I'm not speaking for the group, but yeah, the food really isn't necessary, but but I know what you're doing, and I know what you're feeling, and I know you're wanting just to help, even if it's in some small way, and, and, uh, and we thank you for that. We thank you for uh, your love and, and your concern for the staff. And, you know, the thing, though, about grief is that grief is relative, and it's not just the staff that are trying to deal with this situation and recover from this situation. It's all of you as well. And you say, well, we didn't work with, you know, Matt every day and all that. Granted, but, but there's a number of people in here that have connections through the preschool, and so there's some special bond and relationships with Stephanie, of course, the kids, some of your kids, and certain ones of their kids have close friendships and and, uh, I mean, on multiple levels, you know, we're all connected because, like I pointed out last Sunday, we're, we're a family. Uh, we're not just a church. We're a family of believers. And so the whole grief factor is a factor for all of us. And who's to say, well, it's worse for certain people because of their proximity? I don't know. I don't always know if that's 100% true. 
Um, I think this is something that, that all of us are impacted with, and so we're together in that. Um, but we're also, us getting through this, it's going to happen together, okay? And that's why the family of God here at Crossroads is so important, because in properly dealing with this and the healing and, and everything moving forward, we're going to do that because we're in this together. There's a lot of unknowns. I've got as many um, unknowns regarding all of this as you do. Lots of questions that I don't have answers. I've just been racking my brain. I just don't understand, you know, as to, to the events that played out eight days ago. Um, and so there's a lot of things I don't know, but what I do know is that we're going to get through this together. And I know that's going to happen. You know, we've experienced and went through things other times in the life of this church. Um, not, not quite like this, but you know, some rough, uh, situations we found ourselves in and we got through those and we're going to get through this as well. There's a passage that comes to my mind that, you know, that I get a lot of comfort from when uh, going through a rough stretch. It's uh, the passage in the book of Psalms that refers to God as an ever-present help in time of need. And it's, it's found in Psalm 46. Let me just read three verses. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. That is why we are not afraid, even when the earth quakes or the mountains topple into the depths of the sea. Water roars and foams and mountains shake at the surging waves. Yeah, there may be some things that are difficult right now and fearsome that are happening. But our present ever-present help in time of need, he is with us. So it's not just us together. It's together with him that we're going to get through this. And for that, we're thankful. As we continue to pray and do what we can to minister to the Richards family, um, let's just keep that in mind and keep that as part of our focus. All right, I need to get into the message today because I need to make up for I don't know how many months it's been since I preached last, so I'm going to try just in one swoop make up for all of it. So now you understand why I'm sitting down. All right. <clears throat> Two Sundays ago, Kurt started a series on the Holy Spirit, and there's going to be at that time, and there still may be four messages that are going to be devoted to to uh, um, explaining you know some of the insights we gain from the Bible regarding the Holy Spirit. And last Sunday, we kind of uh, put on pause, you know, the, the part that I was going to uh, approach with. And so I'm going to do that today. But to do that effectively, I really feel like I need to take a step or two back and get a running start at this. I think we'll have even a deeper appreciation for my subject matter uh, that I'm going to be dealing with in regards to the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do is I want to start with the disciples. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, Matthew, and I mean the, the gang, the 12 of them. I want to start with that. Um, in some respects, it's hard for us to put ourselves in their shoes. 
but we're going to try to do that here on the upfront of this message. They lived at a time back in New Testament times. They they lived at a time um, that Israel was an occupied country. Rome had their thumb on Israel, as Rome did most of the known world at that time. But there were reminders all over the place that the disciples had to live with. For example, there were tax booths. Every time you turned around, you saw another tax booth. A lot of times these were being run by Jewish people, but they were working for the Roman government. And so like at bridges, prominent bridges, there would always be a tax booth there and they'd tax you for whatever it is you're carrying as you go across. And even sometimes a tax just on your person, you being able to be there and to live in the country and across that bridge. There were road taxes. There, there were booths all over the place that served as reminders of, of the Roman occupation. There were also Roman soldiers that you would see all the time, especially if you were around any kind of populated area, you saw the Roman soldiers. There were uh, the reminders of barbaric forms of execution. You know, the crucifixion that we, we read about and we've talked about multiple times that Jesus suffered through, um, that was not just kind of a singular use type occasion that was unique that Jesus died but that was the preferred Roman um, um, approach to capital punishment, killing someone who was a non-Roman citizen. Now, Roman citizens wouldn't die that way. They had other ways of them being executed. But non-Romans, this, this was the way. It was something the Romans had invented that was the most humiliating way that they could think of killing someone. But it was also all about torture wanting to prolong agony for hours. In some, in some cases, crucifixions, based on what historians have told us, um, would, one crucifixion would last for days, you know, that a person would be on a cross. And that was all intentional by the Romans. They wanted to torture someone. So, so the, the disciples, you know, they undoubtedly had experienced as far as witnessing you know, like a crucifixion happening, even if they didn't witness the whole process, they had the reminders of crosses because crosses were reused all the time by the Romans to crucify people by prominent roads on the edges of prominent cities. Those were the, the main places, elevated places so that everyone could see. And so you know that the disciples, they had seen all of this kind of stuff and it was just a reminder of the fact that uh, the Romans you know, were occupying their country. So in the middle of all of that, there was this darkness that was kind of hovering over all of their heads. There was this uh, um, gloominess, if you will. Now, three years earlier, from the point that we're picking up our story with, three years earlier, um, some, something special had happened. They had met someone very special, someone who had grown up in a carpenter's home, Someone who was unlike the religious leaders of the day. They didn't know any religious leaders that were quite like this guy. His teachings, they carried authority and conviction and hope. 
you know, far more so than, than things that the disciples were used to hearing out of the mouths of some of the religious leaders. This fellow, which of course I'm talking about Jesus, his compassion for people was unlike anything they had ever seen before. It was so real. It was so fresh. The common people clearly mattered to Jesus. And they weren't used to seeing that in the leaders in the country, both political and religious. They weren't used to seeing that. Being around him, kind of in the middle of all of the gloom and discouragement, it kind of added a, a breath of fresh air. You know, it, it kind of made the future look promising, you know, because of what he represented. It seemed to bring the best out of them, but... As of late, with where we're picking up the story, um, that was the dark clouds were kind of getting thicker overhead. Because Jesus kept referencing his upcoming departure. And he specifically would use the word dead, that his upcoming death. Not that he had never mentioned that before, because he had, but the frequency of his bringing that up and the clarity with which his statements were, were far more so than even what they had been before. This was so bothersome, in fact, that one of the disciples um, chose to rebuke him, and that was Peter. One of the times Jesus was talking about uh, his upcoming death and all, Peter took him aside and he rebuked him you know, for talking like that. Needless to say, this, this whole thing with Jesus's upcoming death and, and all of that, um, it was putting a cloud over everything. The, the bright prospect for the future was somewhat fading in their mind at this time and was being replaced with gloom. On top of that, Jesus specifically pointed out that one of them was going to be the one that betrayed him. And when Peter, you know, spoke up on that occasion, he looked at Peter and he said, before this day's over, you're going to disown me three times. And so, yeah, yeah, there was a sadness that seemed to be dominating at this time. Jesus saw it when he would look at him. You look at uh, John 16, it says, because I've said these things, you are filled with grief. The word grief there literally is referring to a heaviness, a heaviness, a sadness. Jesus could see it in their eyes. He could see it in their facial expressions. He could see it in their body language. This helps explain why on that, that same day, Jesus, uh, when he was saying all of that, and, and when that, where that verse took place, that Jesus started talking about heaven in John 14. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. That was very intentional on Jesus' part because he knew that they all were kind of getting down with what was happening and what they had been hearing from Jesus. And, and so he's, he's sharing about heaven. By the way, just so you know, when you look in the Gospel of John, like, for example, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and part of 18, that's a big chunk of the Gospel of John. It's all talking about one day. It's all involving the last full day that Jesus was with them. By the end of that day, he would be arrested. By the next day, um, he would be on the cross. And so there is a lot of space 
the Apostle John devoted to telling the story to that last full day. And that's, that's where these verses I'm going to be showing you in a moment you know, are coming from. So he talked about heaven to them, but he also talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. We read some of that in chapter 14, 15, and 16, where he's talking about the Spirit. In fact, let me show you uh, part of the key verses on this. In John 14, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Now, the NIV uses the word counselor here. Um, that really isn't my preferred word. Um, I know the NIV has been a popular translation for a lot of years, and, and so that's what most, uh, or a good number of us anyway, are familiar with. Um, but the New American Standard Bible, um, God's Word translation, the New King James Version, the New Century Version, among a couple of others, they all use a different word instead of counselor. They use the word helper there, which at first may seem a little bit interesting, but, but actually it's not when you think of what that Greek word is. You don't need to remember this, but the Greek word is parakletos, and it literally means one called alongside to help. That's what the word means, literally. One called alongside to help. So what Jesus is saying, I will ask the Father and he will give you another one who is called alongside to help you, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Well, anyway, right after he says that, without hardly taking a breath, he continues. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, I didn't highlight all of the personal pronouns there. He probably ought to be highlighted as well. But I wanted you to see the pronouns being used in reference to the Holy Spirit. And uh, Kurt talked about this two Sundays ago. The Holy Spirit is not an it, though sometimes that's our tendency to refer to the Spirit as an it. It's not an it. It's not an energy force or something like that. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we've got... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so when you look at the pronouns that are used in your Bible, they are pronouns like this. It's not pronouns like it that are being used. Well, he continues and he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Now again, that I will come to you, that again is, is an indication of the Trinity factor in all of this, but look at that preceding phrase. I will not leave you as orphans. That is Jesus's way of saying, I will not abandon you. You know, he's been saying, I'm going to leave, but I'm not abandoning you. I'm not going to leave you hanging to just toughen it out on your own. That, that's the point that Jesus is getting across here. Now, remember the title of today's message, The Promise. And this is what I definitely wanted you to see because in Jesus' teachings, that's kind of right at the core of where he's talking about the promise. This is the promise. He's given it, but he's actually echoing it. God the Father has already given this, this promise elsewhere in Scripture, but, but this is the promise that we're talking about. 
in the very context that Jesus is helping to deal with their grief, that heaviness that they were experiencing, he makes this key statement about the promise of the Spirit. He says, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, the helper, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Kind of interesting, he says, it's for your good. And we're going to see how that is true here in just a moment. But before we do, there's one other thing I need to clarify. And a lot of us may all be on this same page, but I don't want to assume we all are on this same page, okay? I need to clarify that the promise wasn't just for the apostles. It's important that we understand this. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. I'm going to go to Acts chapter 1, if you're following along in your Bible, um, and make a couple of comments here in the first two chapters of Acts chapter 1. This is, you know, a little over 40 days later from what we were just reading in, in John 14, John 16. Jesus' crucifixion has taken place. He's been buried. He rose again on the third day. And for 40 days, there have been some resurrection appearances that he's made and all. Well, anyway, 40 days later, we come to Acts chapter 1. And you look at the beginning, it says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Luke is the one that clearly, as you read on, you'll see he, he is the one that wrote this. And, and he's writing it to Theophilus, and it's actually a two-volume set. The first volume is what we call the Gospel of Luke. And that's where he was talking about Jesus' teachings, his miracles, and crucifixion, all of that is found in the gospel of Luke. And Luke wrote that to Theophilus. And now he's writing again to Theophilus. He said, in my former volume, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now he's going to pick up and continue that, except now he's going to talk about what Jesus is doing through his church. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. And so Jesus is there. This is the chapter that talks about the ascension when Jesus, after his resurrection, 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And he's talking to the disciples and he makes something very clear to the disciples in verse four. He says to them, he gives them a command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And that's John 14, 15, 16. Jesus had spoken about this. But, uh, but, but it's the promise. This is the promise that we're talking about. And God's got a gift. He's going to be given them. But it's important that they stay in Jerusalem. And so Jesus ascends into heaven. And then 10 days pass. And we come to chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. And it's on this day, it's a Jewish festival, and so there's tons and tons of people from all over the place, other countries and all, whether they be uh, Jewish people that live in another country, or it be proselytes, people that had converted, uh, Gentiles that had converted to Judaism that lived in other countries. But all these thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of people are converging on Jerusalem, and uh, it's Pentecost. 
And, and something special happens. In verse 4 of Acts chapter 2, they are filled with the Spirit. And it says they begin speaking in tongues. If you look at your footnote in your Bible, it says languages there. That's literally what the word is, languages. These were actual languages that people spoke. As you read a little bit further, you'll see all the different people groups in verses, what, 8 and 9, represented among these different languages. Each one of the apostles was speaking in a language that they had never studied, they had never learned. But now it's a miraculous thing. The Spirit comes upon them, and they're speaking about the things of God in this language. And, of course, certain people are going to group around them, people that can understand that language, and then others are going to group around another one of the apostles. They all spoke a common language. The Romans made sure of that. But everybody had their distinct language as well. And that's what the apostles were doing. They were speaking in these distinct languages and some people didn't really understand what was happening in verse 13 there's always some in the crowd that are going to criticize whatever it is that's happening and they're starting to say well these these guys are all drunk it's early in the day but boy they've been hitting the bottle already today well because it sounded like a lot of gibberish to them but what was happening was was real and it, it these were actual words with real meaning and, and the people that understood whatever the language was, they went and they grouped around that particular individual. Now, this is really important because I want you to see that, that the promise that Peter is going to end up talking about wasn't just for the apostles. After everybody, everybody's attention had been grabbed and everybody knew something very special was happening, then Peter got up and started preaching in the language that they all shared in common. And he starts telling the story of Jesus. And he even points out that some of you that are in this crowd were a part of those that crucified the Lord. And when he died and was buried, he rose again. So he features the resurrection as an important part of the sermon that he gave that day. And people were convicted. People really felt moved by what Peter was saying. And so what we see later in the chapter is that they say, brothers, what shall we do? Because, man, they felt bad because many of them had played a role in all of this that Peter was talking about and not a good role. And so Peter responds to them and he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the verse that we're well familiar with. He says, repent and be baptized. And this is what you need to be doing. And, and you're going to receive something. You're going to receive the forgiveness of your sins. Wow, that's a biggie because they all needed it. We all need it. Every human being needs to be forgiven because we've all played a hand in, in uh, um, doing what we shouldn't be doing. But there's more to this. We'll not only receive forgiveness, but he says you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, the promise goes beyond the apostles. Peter's standing up there talking to people of that generation, and he's basically saying this promise applies to all of you, that you will receive the Spirit. If you turn to God, if you repent and you're baptized, then you're going to receive the Spirit in your life. But we're not done yet because there's one more key statement that's being made here. He goes on and says, the promise is for you and your children 
and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So it not only applies to you, Peter says, it applies to your children. It not only applies to your children, it applies to your children's children and your children's children's children. And you, you get the idea all the way to us today. It applies to us. And so what we're talking about, this subject matter, is not just, uh, you know, a capsule glimpse of something in the first century that really doesn't have a great deal of relevance to us today. What we're talking about today has a great deal of relevance because it includes here for all of those who are far off, and that includes you, and that includes me. What was it Jesus had said earlier before his crucifixion? He said, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. When it says for your good, you are a part of the your there. I am part of the your. It's for our good. So how is it for our good that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells a believer when they turn their life to Christ? What are some of the benefits we receive? All right, let's talk about some of these benefits. First of all, the Spirit convicts us. This is an important role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Good place to begin is right after Jesus says that it's for our good in John 16. The very next verse, notice this. It says, when he comes, I'm right in the middle of that passage. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. This is a primary role of the Holy Spirit in our world today and in your life, bringing conviction of sin. Chances are he has already done this at least to a, an extent in your life, or I doubt you would be here today. Okay, so the Spirit has already, you know, worked in some capacity in your life in order for you to be able to, to be there, to sense your need. We can't just rely on our own internal moral compass, you know, in regards to uh, our lives and understanding right and wrong and, you know, living the way that we should. We can't rely on our own moral compass primarily because we're too good at rationalizing our behavior. I mean, and I'm speaking to all of us in this room. And maybe, maybe for some, they're professionals at it, where others maybe aren't professionals, but we do it. We rationalize. When we step out of line, when we do something deep down inside we know we shouldn't be doing, we've got a reason for that, right? We have a way of justifying our behavior. You know, well, I did it for good reason. It's because of this or it's because of that. Or We downplay some of the decisions we make and some of the things we say. And if all else fails, the default way of approaching something like that is to find someone who's crossed that line and they're a lot worse at it than you are and say, well, look, I compare a whole lot better than that person. That person is, is the one that's bad. And, you know, and it's like it doesn't work that way. So we can't rely on our own inter internal moral compass. When we find ourselves feeling bad about some wrong that we've been engaged in, sensing a need for God's forgiveness, whether it be because we took something that didn't belong to us, we took something at work that we knew shouldn't belong to us, or we said something hurtful that brought pain into someone's life, whatever it is, when we start sensing 
a need for God's forgiveness that what I did wasn't good, it was bad, um, realize that that is proof that the Holy Spirit is working in your life because that's what the Holy Spirit does. Before a person can truly repent, there needs to be a recognition of the need to be forgiven. And that's what the Holy Spirit specializes in. And so, by the way, let me tack this on. When you're witnessing to somebody as a believer, you're witnessing to an extended family member or a co-worker, and you're sharing the gospel with them in hopes of breaking through and them being receptive to the saving message of Jesus Christ, you know, and you seem to be hitting against a wall and they've got a tough exterior and you don't seem to be breaking through. I've done this, and I would imagine a number of you have done this, is the conclusion we sometimes make is, all right, I'm not being intense enough. I need to get this message across. So we ratchet it a little bit, you know, more intense, and we fire away again with the gospel message. It's almost as though we think that the work of conviction is our work. It's not. We are to be faithful in sharing the gospel message to others, but we're doing this in teamwork with the Spirit of God who specializes in the work of conviction. And so if there's going to be conviction happening, the Spirit needs to be involved in what's going on. All right, so why or in what ways do we benefit from this promised Holy Spirit? He sanctifies us. Now, I know this sounds like a church word, you know, sanctified, sanctification. It comes from a family of words that include that, sanctification, but it also words like salvation, saints, um, holy, holiness. I mean, they actually come from the same root um, word. Uh, It's all part of a family of words that are found throughout Scripture. And if it helps, think about rebirth and renewal, okay? Think about those words, which sound very different, but actually they're not. Look at what Paul told Titus. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ. You see, this is what the Spirit specializes in doing is bringing about this rebirth and renewal. Paul is, in that passage, it's like he's borrowing some of the terminology Jesus used in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about how you must be born again. Well, that's the, the very idea. Rebirth, born again, renewal. The reason I use the word sanctification in the the second point on your outline is because it's a good word that is used in passages like 2 Thessalonians 2. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. I want you to think back. For some of you, you may not have to think back very far Others of you, you may need to think back a number of years, but think back to a time when your life was a mess. I mean, it was a mess, largely due 
to the fact that you felt you could get by with calling all the shots yourself, that you knew what was best for you, and so you were making all the decisions of what you were going to do and weren't going to do, and just as time went on, things got messier in your life. Okay, you thinking of that time in your life when all that was going on? Well, the mistake that frequently gets made is that when a person is in one of those messy stages of their life, when they come to the realization of their need for God, they mistakenly conclude, well, I need to clean up my act and then I'll go to church. I need to stop doing some of these bad habits I've been doing. And once I break some of these bad habits, then I'm going to reach out to God and I'm going to invite him into my life. Why are we trying to do what the Spirit of God specializes in doing? That is the very thing that the Spirit of God does and wants to do in our lives. But yet when we kind of hold them at arm's length and we just say, well, wait a minute, let me get my life back on track and get it straightened up a little bit and then I'll get serious with the Lord. And it's like, man, you talk about putting the cart before the horse. You know, that's a major mistake on our part when we start. Yet it's so common for people to think along those lines. The stain of sin is too deep. We can scrub and scrub as much as we can, but it is not going to work. We need a new birth. We need to let the Spirit do what he is good at doing. All right, so number three, what other benefit? He strengthens us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Strengthened. The, the, the word power there, by the way, you might be interested to know, is the Greek word dunamis. That's where we get the word dynamite. Okay, That he can strengthen us with dynamite on the inside. And uh, don't, don't have the picture here of Arnold Schwarzenegger and thinking, oh, yeah, muscles on top of muscles. And, well, I mean, why am I referring to Arnold Schwarzenegger? Don't be picturing becoming like me and just, you know, um, you know, that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about the inner you on the inside. This is what the spirit is able to do. Trying to live a good moral life to act and react the way that you should is a tall order, a very tall order. And if you are just relying on yourself, um, it's going to be more than difficult to actually accomplish it. So let, let me show you a passage. This is Romans chapter 7, and I'm just going to read it. I know it looks like ooh, 10 verses, but I'm going to read this fast. Just listen to what you catch in this, okay? We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. 
When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Yeah, do you get it? Do you get what Paul said? That's the apostle Paul. We kind of consider him a spiritual giant, right? But he's kind of given a little glimpse into his own life. And he's saying, man, I'm always coming up on the short end. When I tried to do this on my own, I can't do it. I can't accomplish what needs to be accomplished. The very next verse that I'm not referencing, verse 25 says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and thus starts talking about the victory that is available through Christ. Uh, that's just a verse or so away from the beginning of chapter 8. And in chapter 8, he starts talking about how the Spirit sets us free from all of that. So yeah, this is what the Holy Spirit specializes in. He can strengthen us to be able to accomplish things that we could have never accomplished in our own ability. Another benefit of the Holy Spirit is he promotes growth. He promotes growth in us. Consider the passage that a lot of us, when we think about the Spirit, this is the passage we think of. Galatians chapter 5, it's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, it talks about five or nine, nine fruit of the Spirit. And basically the point that's being made is that these are like character traits that God wants to see in your life and he wants to see in my life. And the fact of the matter is these are natural byproducts of the Spirit functioning in the life of a believer. If the Spirit of God is active in your life as a believer then you're going to become a kinder person than what you were before. You're going to be exercising self-control better than you ever have before in your life. You're going to experience joy that circumstances in life can't snatch away from you. You're going to have an inner peace that surpasses understanding. This is all part of what the Spirit of God does in the life of a believer. I like the way Paul said it in Romans Chapter 8 said, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And so what Paul said in that original passage I had up there about the fruit of the Spirit, he goes on just two verses later, he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That means cooperate with what the Spirit's trying to do in your life. All right, another benefit we get from the Spirit is he illuminates the word for us. There's a good word that you haven't used this past month, illuminates. Yeah, but uh, the, the concept is very much biblical. Right in the middle of the passage where Jesus is talking about the paracletos, the counselor, the called alongside to help, the helper, um, he, he says this, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears. He will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. You see, what Jesus was pointing out is that the Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on Jesus. 
and on Jesus's words. I know we live in a day where some religious leaders are trying to make it look like the Holy Spirit shines a light on himself, but the Spirit doesn't do that. The Spirit shines the spotlight on Jesus and on Jesus's words. And, and so you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and there's multiple verses here that break this down. But verse 10 says, we know about these things because God has sent his spirit to tell us. That's how we have the understanding that we have. And his spirit searches out and shows us all of God's deepest secrets. You know, if the spirit isn't in your life, what that chapter is talking about, then all of this basically sounds like foolishness. But if the spirit is active in your life, then this becomes the wisdom of God. Verse 14, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What does the spirit do for us? He prays for us. I talked about this last Sunday, so I'm not going to be breaking this one down, but it's the Romans um, 8 passage. It says sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we cannot come up with the right words to pray, and the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And I talked about how I was finding that to be true last weekend. And I gave you a couple personal um, stories of other times in my life I found that to be true. The Spirit intercedes for us in prayers um, on our behalf. And then number seven, he equips us to serve. Something that is helpful to know, both for seasoned Christians, but also for brand new Christians, and that is that everyone has something to contribute in the Lord's church. Everyone has something to contribute. And I'm not talking dollars here, although dollars can be a part of this discussion, but, but I'm, I'm in including a number of other things too. Because in the passage I'm going to be referring to, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's kind of like Romans 12, and it's kind of like 1 Peter chapter 4, you know, we, we start developing a list of some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, serving and teaching, leadership, mercy, encouragement, administration, discernment, hospitality, giving, and that's just the starter list. But when you look in Scripture, you see that there are a number of things that the Spirit of God gives believers. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And that's, that's what that passage is talking about within its context. Everybody has a, a, a gift. It may be similar to what someone else has, or it may be very different than what someone else has. But, but every one of us, you can't take a pass if you're a believer here, um, every one of us have been equipped to serve in some capacity. And these all come from the Spirit, verse 11. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. Now, the chapter goes on to explain that it is totally out of place for there to be feelings of superiority within the body or feelings of inferiority within the body based on whatever the gifts are. So, say, for example, a person has a gift that puts them in front of the hot spotlights on the stage where they can sweat in front of everybody. Um, someone has that particular gift. 
gift, but someone else has a gift where they don't have spotlights, but instead they have diapers nearby as they're working in the nursery. One is not superior to the other. One is not inferior to the other. We're all part of the family of God. And as the Spirit has determined, the distribution of gifts have happened and we excel at certain things. And we may do not a half bad job at other things and then we may be flat out horrible at a few things. But, but it's the Spirit that gives us those special abilities. And boy, we should not ever develop an attitude that someone is more important in this church than some others in this church because you that is so unbiblical that is not accurate and and it should never exist you know within the lord's church these gifts and i might add to this these gifts are not for your benefit whatever the gift is that you have Wherever the gift is that I have, it says in 1 Peter 4, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. The gift that you have is for the benefit of the people that are around you. The gift that I have is for your benefit. The gift you have isn't for self-promotion. God forbid that we ever use one of these gifts to promote ourselves to be more significant, more important in the eyes of other people. That it's clearly talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. That should not happen. We cannot let that happen. No feelings of superiority, no feelings of inferiority. The spirit has made the decisions just as he has determined. Now you've got an idea of what he's doing in our life. The Spirit of God is not passive. He is very active in our lives. And uh, might we as believers cooperate with what he's doing? Might we keep in step with him? Living the life that God has called us to live, it's a tall order. But the good news is, you and I, we don't have to do it alone. We have a companion who is with us every step of the way in our Christian lives. And that's a promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to talk about something that we may or may not have been aware of. But Lord, your word sheds light and it opens our eyes to be able to understand a very important topic better. And Lord, I pray as a result of this that you will find us keeping in step with the Spirit and what the Spirit's trying to accomplish in our lives. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans, but giving us a, one to come alongside us and in us to help us every step of the way as we live our lives to your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. We're going to step into our time of communion. If you didn't get a packet of communion, they're on the tables around the room. You can do that right now. But uh, in this week, you know, it's just brought the range of emotions, the range of thoughts and feelings. And 
just that entire scope of, of uh, the different stages of grief and, and all of that. And um, as I thought this week, I was thinking just kind of about how sometimes we can get just so inundated with thoughts and information. I was thinking back to uh, just the whole idea of uh, you know, cell phone. And, and uh, I'm at the age where I kind of got to watch cell phones come of age. When I was in high school is when they really first started becoming uh, accessible for the average person, kind of in the late 90s. And then, you know, through college, we got to watch them progress from that old Nokia brick phone, which, by the way, mine did survive an entire trip across a parking lot when I flung it off the back of my spare tire on my Jeep one time. Those things were indestructible, right? We watch them progress to a colored screen and then add a camera and then eventually get into the smartphone technology. And, and we got to eventually where we could use them to FaceTime and we can see people in real time and real conversation all the way across the globe even. And, and we, we wonder about that, just, just that amazing technology. You know, it made it great for us when we lived 2,000 miles away from family, that my kids could see their grandparents' faces and hear their voices in real time rather than like when I was a kid and you had to make a long distance phone call. But I also think about the downside of it and how with technology now, there's no escaping reality. Uh, once upon a time when you wanted to watch the news, you'd turn it on at 5.30 or 6 o'clock and you'd watch a 30 minute news, uh, news segment and then maybe again at 10 o'clock and that was it. Or you'd read the paper in the morning and that was it. Now it's there all the time. It's in front of us all the time. And on weeks like this, that's hard when it's right in front of us nonstop, just a constant reminder of what's going on and what we're dealing with. We can be constantly reminded of the trouble that we have in the world. And I want to encourage you, especially on weeks like this, to remember a verse we mentioned last week and a verse that we've mentioned a lot throughout the last several days when Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. I mean, that's... Every one of us would probably shout amen at that right now. In this world, we will have trouble because we have been seeing that. But don't forget what Jesus said immediately before and immediately after those words. Immediately before he says, you'll have trouble. He says, in me, you have peace. And then immediately after, you'll have trouble. He says, but take heart, I have overcome he would later in that same night, in that same vein of conversation, tell his disciples and tell the people who were accusing him that my kingdom is not of this world. And that's what communion does. It reminds us of that. When we come to his table for just a split second, we get to step into that kingdom mindset and into that, 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 that mentality of being with him. Monday night, we had our prayer night here and, and we took a time of communion and I was just reminded that when Jesus went to the cross, yes, it was to redeem and restore us to the Father, to, to bring us salvation through his blood. But it also tells us in the Old Testament that by his stripes, we are healed. That goes beyond physically. Yes, physically we're healed, but I believe that goes into even the deeper parts where we have hurt this week emotionally, mentally, spiritually, all those levels that we are hurting this week, by his stripes, we're healed. So we're going to step to the Lord's table this morning.
And we're going to take this little piece of bread that represents his body and this little cup of juice that represents his blood and be reminded of that, that healing comes through him and through him alone. Father, we are so, so grateful for Jesus for the body and the blood of Jesus that, that, that restore and redeem us, that bring us wholeness and completeness once again. God, I pray as we take this, that we would honor you in all that we do, and we would ever be reminded of what you have done for us. We pray this today in the name of Jesus. A couple of quick announcements before you all head out of here today. First off, a couple of things that aren't in your bulletin. Uh, number one, and many of you are already aware of this, but we have established an account for the Richards family, um, and we are collecting. They have a, an account set up in a bank already, but to kind of protect the privacy of where that is, we just said we will collect it, and we will send it directly to that bank. So anything that you would like to give for them, you can put in the offering boxes. Just make sure you put it in an envelope or on a check. Just write it that it's for them, and they will get every bit of that. Um, we're working on getting a push pay account set up. We'd hit a snag earlier in the week. As soon as that's there, we'll have that published where you could uh, give electronically as well too. Now also, something that uh, you might have noticed on your um, connection card today, if you haven't, I want to draw your attention to it really quick. We said last Sunday, and we've said throughout this week, one thing that we want to be able to do is help provide grief counseling. If you've got kiddos that have been a part of the kids' ministry, or, or just you're struggling in general with this too, uh, we want to be able to provide that, but 
kind of in the logistics of that, after we said it last week, we're like, okay, now how do we do that? So when we've talked to a few people, we just need to kind of get an idea of, of who might need it and when. So if you, there's a box on your connection card, you can check that and drop it in the offering box on your way out. That'll let us know that you are interested and we'll go from there with that. So uh, take note of that as well too. Uh, one more thing that's on the screens that I want to draw your attention to. In the bullets, and we had a, a prime time coming up a week from this coming Wednesday uh, that was going to be a talent show. We've decided to kind of push the talent show back just a little bit. Uh, we're going to have a, instead just a night together. We're just going to come together. We're going to do a potluck. We're just, we felt, you know, we, we, we said earlier we're not going to let the enemy win, but sometimes too we just want to spend time together. And so we're just going to have a potluck, a fellowship night on uh, the, the first Wednesday night in October. Still going to be here in, in the gym. I don't, we'll, we may adjust the time a little bit, but we'll let you know about that. So be looking for more information on that as well, too. Uh, two big events that we do have coming up that we absolutely want to make sure we keep focusing on and, and getting towards. Uh, this coming Saturday, ladies, it's our Restored Women's Conference. Um, again, questions came up over the last couple of weeks. Should we keep these going? Should we stop them? We said, absolutely not. We are going to do these. And especially given the, the topic and the title and the theme of this women's conference that has been on the books for a year now, what better time to talk about being restored? And so um, that is this coming week. Uh, the doors open, I believe, at 5.15. The event starts at 6. If you're not signed up yet, you can 